Welcome, parents and other listeners. This is The Owner's Manual, a podcast for parents. I'm your host, Drew Nash, coming to you from One to One Pediatrics in Danville, California. This is episode 113. We have a very interesting show lined up for you today. In today's episode, I will talk with a pediatric gastroenterologist about celiac disease and all things gluten. We will talk about what defines celiac disease, who can be considered gluten intolerant, and who's at risk. We will also discuss when a child's primary care physician should perform some testing, and also when referral to a GI specialist might be indicated. In addition, we'll continue the segments Pediatric Fun Facts and Parenting Horror Stories. At the end of the show, I'll answer some questions from listeners. For those people who accidentally happened upon us and might want to find us intentionally, The Owner's Manual, a podcast for parents, is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and most other podcasting platforms. The listener base is growing, but since I'm always trying to increase our audience, I'm calling on you to help spread the word. Tell your friends, neighbors, the mailman, people you pass on the street, and anybody you know who might like listening to us how to find us. Follow us on whatever platform you use to hear us so you can be notified when each new episode becomes available. In addition, we're on Facebook at the Owner's Manual Podcast, where you can like us, post a comment, post a question to be answered on the show, or even tell your pediatric horror story. If there's a topic you're itching to hear about, this is a great way to let us know. Also, for the past few episodes, I've started posting information, photos, and sometimes videos to add a visual component to some of our segments. So check it out and like us. And now for the boring disclaimer. While we hope that listeners are able to learn and benefit from the content of this show, the information discussed on the owner's manual is not intended to diagnose or treat any specific individual or condition. There is no substitute for direct patient care from a trained clinician. If you have concerns about your child, we recommend that you make an appointment with your child's primary care physician for an evaluation. Before we jump into the main topic, it's time for pediatric fun facts. Each week, I bring you an interesting pediatric factoid or historical item that you probably didn't know and might not believe. My head is exploding with these things and I'm hoping to relieve some of the pressure by sharing it with you. So let's jump right in. Pediatric Fun Facts. Did you know that babies can be born with teeth? Yes, this is very rare but true. Natal teeth are actually present when the baby is born, while neonatal teeth erupt during the first month after birth. A former term for natal teeth was witch's teeth, so I thought this would be a good fun fact to discuss on the week of Halloween. The occurrence of natal and neonatal teeth for centuries has been associated with diverse superstitions among many different ethnic groups. In some cultures, like Malaysian communities, a natal tooth is believed to herald good luck. In ancient China, however, the community considered the presence of these teeth as a bad omen and the affected children were considered to be monsters and bearers of misfortune. Shakespeare contributed his thoughts on natal teeth in King Henry VI when he referred to Richard III in his quotation, 
Heath hadst thou in thy head, when thou wast born to reguity, thou camest to bite the world. In England, the belief was that this condition would guarantee the conquest of the world. Natal teeth are about three times more common than neonatal teeth, but they are still fairly rare. Natal teeth occur in about one out of every 2,000 births. In over 25 years of practice, I've only seen this once. Problems that can develop as a result of natal teeth include the baby biting the mom while nursing, ow! Also, since the roots are not well developed, they can fall out during sleep and pose an aspiration risk. Because of this, natal teeth are usually removed by a pediatric dentist. And that's your pediatric fun fact for the day. And now on to the show. My guest today attended medical school at SRI Rakhmandra Medical College and Research Institute in India. She completed her pediatric residency at the University of Illinois Hospital and her pediatric GI fellowship at the University of Chicago Hospitals. She is currently an associate clinical professor in pediatric gastroenterology at the UCSF Benioff Children's Hospital in Oakland. I have traveled to her satellite office in Walnut Creek, California to speak to her today about all things gluten. Please welcome to the show, Dr. Mala Seti. So welcome, Dr. Seti. Thanks for uh, taking the time to speak with us today. Yes, thank you for having me here today. And today we're going to talk everything about gluten. Yes, it's a very exciting topic. It is, actually. and it's very timely and kind of the thing these days. So let's start with talking about what I think is what I learned more about in medical school, which is more like your classic celiac disease, yes. which is probably less, not the majority of people who come in with gluten issues. Is that not correct? Yes, it's a very small fraction of those who are. But what is celiac disease for people that are listening and kind of how is that diagnosed and how does that present usually? Uh, so celiac disease is a, is a chronic autoimmune condition. It's caused by gluten uh, and it's actually a immune reaction to the gluten so you actually you are developing uh, antibodies to gluten which is a protein in in, grain, in certain grains correct gluten is the structural protein of wheat and uh, and that's the protein that triggers the immune reaction in mm -hmm. the small intestine and the antibody response in the bloodstream and uh, causes damage in the small intestine. So they have difficulty absorbing nutrients. They, they often have difficulty with growth and development, as well as uh, developing things like anemia and bone issues. Because of malabsorption and all. Absolutely. So just to kind of go back to, so people can get a visual, I remember what I was taught in medical school is normally the lining of your small intestine has these microscopic little fingers that right. increase the surface area of Correct. your gut so you can absorb things well. Um, mm -hmm. And when you have an inflamed gut from gluten mm -hmm. sensitivity, that all goes away. Right. It completely disappears. So it like flattens. A, it becomes like a hose. Correct. And so yeah. all the nutrition is lost into yep. the stool. And um, the intestine doesn't function very well at yep. that point. And so you don't absorb stuff. So all the things that go along with malabsorption, Correct. stomach aches, yeah. diarrhea, mm -hmm. but you can see constipation as a presenting symptom. You can. Yeah. And I, th and they think it's because of the immune response, which can actually, actually happen in the, in the large intestine as well. So mm -hmm. they do find inflammation, uh, that goes through the whole intestine. 
And there are associated diseases with celiac disease. Like there are. Diabetes is a comorbidity. Correct. And, and celiac disease being an autoimmune condition does r- increase your risk of other autoimmune conditions. There are uh, other gluten-related disorders as well. Mm-hmm. So we have to monitor for those kinds of things in people who have celiac disease. What kind of other things can present? So you can develop, uh, there's a skin disorder called dermatitis herpetiformis, and mm-hmm. that's uh, another immune response to gluten. Uh, in adults, they see uh, conditions like gluten ataxia, and so they develop antibodies that uh, go and attack the cerebellum, and they so actually have so you see neurologic side effects, neurologic from it. issues, wow. okay. yes. Uh, and then there's the non-immune responses to to gluten, so things like uh, depression, mm-hmm. things like um, anxiety. Uh, other behavioral issues. Do you think that's directly from the autoimmune thing or a result of malabsorption and malnutrition as a result or any or all of the above? Yeah, any or all of the above. And so we end up having to follow uh, lots of different uh, factors, including, you know, psychological evaluations, mm-hmm. but also looking at micronutrient deficiencies and, uh, you know, and then being on a gluten-free diet itself can be kind of a psychologically taxing. So. Can be, although I think it's much less so now. There's mm-hmm. so many more available foods sure. at the grocery store, and most restaurants have gluten-free options, sure, so sure. it becomes less restrictive. Yes. Uh, and there's a lot of kids on the spectrum that have associated gluten They have sensitivity. gluten sensitivities. So there's, you know, there's the gluten-related disorders, which we talked about, which mm-hmm. is celiac disease, and then the... Uh, uh, dermatitis or pediformis. Yep. So we know those are specific to gluten. And then you have the conditions that are more related to sensitivity mm-hmm. uh, and allergy. Yeah. So wheat allergy is a very kind of a rare condition, but it, it can be there and it can give you GI symptoms. Which is totally different than celiac disease. Absolutely. Yeah. And so how does that present more? And that tends to be more of an immediate reaction. And you can you can sometimes find uh, immune, immunity against wheat, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, allergists can sometimes, uh, find in blood tests, yeah. blood tests and skin tests. And sure. So that's, you eat a piece of bread or something that containing Correct. gluten and you will very quickly develop a stomach ache. Very quickly. Yeah. Vomit, yep. diarrhea, mm-hmm. uh, and you may have breathing difficulties in some situations. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's so a different response. Tested differently. Correct. Okay. And then moving on to the large group of people that are kind of gluten sensitive, but it's sort of this difficult to test for. Right. There is no known uh, diagnostic test for gluten sensitivity. Uh, There's debate on what what to call it exactly Mm -hmm. because uh, it's unclear if it's gluten or any of the other proteins that are present in wheat Mm -hmm. that people are reacting to. Um, it could also be part of the carb carbohydrate fraction of the wheat mm-hmm. that people are reacting to. So things like the FODMAPS diet, which eliminates uh, fermentable carbohydrates. Can you go a little bit more into detail about that? Because I heard someone talking about it the other day, and I was picking up on what they were saying, but I wanted to hear more detail. Yeah. So the FODMAPS diet, which is fermentable oligo di, uh, monosaccharides, and polyols, these are carbohydrates that mm-hmm. are our body um, typically, you know, can digest, but at limited quantities or uh, a certain amount. And our yep. diets are pretty heavy in that. Um, and so it tends to then feed bacteria. 
and the bacterial colonies in our large intestine um, can can sometimes feast. And uh, because we're not breaking down or absorbing correct. the nutrients earlier on in the intestinal tract, correct. so it's and left this, over. And it's it's all falling into the large intestine, and these uh, these colonies will then feast and and multiply, and mm-hmm. they produce uh, toxic gases that our bodies don't really tolerate very well, like methane and hydrogen in our, mm-hmm. and causes pain, discomfort, sometimes diarrhea. Uh, and these are kind of the, the symptoms of IBS, what, yeah. what we uh, call IBS before we understood all of these other things about carbohydrates. So in some people, this, uh, these kind of diets tend to help. And so do you test for them before you recommend the diet, or is it something more you just empirically say, why don't you try this and see how you feel in a few weeks? I think there are some tests that you can do. There are things called breath tests Mm -hmm. that uh, measure these particular um, gases like hydrogen and methane and, you know, can at least help to uh, identify what's causing it. Um, But sometimes the diet alone can, can be beneficial and it's, reasonable to try the diet sure because there's really no harm correct and so what foods are you eliminating when you're going on that diet right so initially we'll try things like lactose uh, that would be the most common disaccharidase deficiency sure. and um, just going on a lactose-free diet for two weeks tends to help uh, alleviate some of these symptoms mm-hmm. uh, outside of that things like fructose uh, which is you know absorbed in limited quantity in our intestines so uh, that's also a fermentable uh, sugar that will feed bacteria it's in fruit and it's in yeah. fruit and yeah. honey and and uh, you know types of gum and so, so do you tell someone not to eat fruit or you just limit how much fruit they eat yeah so so the diet has a lots of different um, lists of foods that have high fructose sure. content and yep. so uh, that there's definitely great websites and uh, information sites yep. and books. Kind of give you a list of foods. Yeah. Sure. yeah. Okay. Uh, so you try to avoid the high fructose content um, foods mm-hmm. and uh, start there. Some people start the gluten-free diet. Yep. That that would be the the next step, I suppose. So you do one for a few weeks and then do another. Correct. Yeah. So you yeah. can figure out what's going on. Right. There. Yeah. Right. The um, the FODMAP diet itself, though, is uh, it, it's pretty extensive and it includes all of these foods uh, and can be difficult to do unless you uh, are, you know, very symptomatic and sure. some people will do yeah. the whole thing. It's just so restrictive. It is very yeah. restrictive. So. And then so gluten-free, what things might you find gluten in? So what things do you have to eliminate? We right. talked about wheat, but are there other grains that have gluten as well? Yes, yes. Uh, gluten is in barley and rye. Um, and then there's, you know, gluten-like proteins in oats as well. So okay. some people have to avoid all of those. Some people can tolerate oats. Some people can't. Correct. You're eating mostly rice as a grain or a flour. Rice. Um, or you can try things like quinoa mm-hmm. or half there's there's other good grains that are a little harder to find but um tend to be better in the in the terms of um you know more b vitamins and more fiber which rice doesn't have and what time frame do you think someone who's trying a gluten-free diet needs to try that for is a day or two going to cut it or does it have to be a few weeks or even longer right so ideally i think about two weeks is 
the recommended duration for going gluten free mm-hmm. if you're thinking about uh, this in the terms of a FODMAPs like mm-hmm. diet. So looking for improvement as far as how your stomach feels, bowel right. habits, right? Just what you feel like after you've eaten or just throughout the day. Absolutely. Level of gas. Yes. Yeah. And then what about if you're talking about maybe it affecting behavioral aspects? Is it, is it going to take longer? I wouldn't expect to see a, a night and day difference for certain things, but some improvement. Yeah, I think that's a lot harder to, yeah, um, to quantify. assess. And uh, some people have to do longer in, in order to assess that, especially in children, if you're thinking about doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, there's no actual... Uh, time limit, I think, on on these. The main concern always ends up being that it's, um, you know, it's restricting certain nutrient contents. So, yeah, sure. Uh, and so you can have secondary effects. And so it's important to think about uh, doing it in fairly short term if you're going to try it. And then, but if you're going to be on it long term, are there supplements or things you need to add into your diet? Mm-hmm. So what kind of things might someone yeah, need to so add? Yeah, so free diet tends to be depends on how you do it of course um, but if you're substituting with uh, a lot of gluten-free types of foods you tend to uh, decrease the amount of fiber uh, iron and b vitamins mm-hmm. that uh, you're taking in so you could develop some deficiencies uh, if you're only relying on gluten-free products that are processed yeah um they're also high in fat, so you may see some weight gain and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, so if you're going naturally gluten-free, it tends to be a lot healthier. Yeah, yeah. As opposed to eating processed foods Correct. that are gluten-free. Sure. Correct. Okay. And then, has there been a dramatic increase in the amount of gluten sensitivity and celiac disease in the last, say, 10, 20 years? I mean, there's certainly more awareness of it. And sure. so we see more things available for people who are gluten-free. Mm-hmm. Is this more of a fad effect, you think? Or do you think there's actually more disease yeah. or inflammation going on in the gut? Yeah, I, I do think that there's a, there's an increase in autoimmune conditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in the autoimmune gluten-related uh, disorders, you do see some increase overall. Uh, that could be due to awareness. We're, we're diagnosing sure. it better um, and we're you know recognizing it better. Uh, in the early days, celiac disease was, uh, you know, if, if you had it, it was uh, high mortality. And so uh, because they didn't know what caused it. So, so now we know and it's treatable. I mean, what I learned in medical school as the classic presentation of celiac disease, which I don't think I've ever seen this, is a, a baby's thriving and growing mm-hmm. and around eight or nine months you start to see them start to fall off the growth chart because that's historically when you start right. introducing gluten-containing products. So someone's gluten-sensitive and they're doing great for the first mm-hmm. half of the year of their first year and then really starts to change and bowels change and all that. And I i don't think I can recall ever having seen an infant or a really? toddler yeah. present that way with that kind of a growth chart, but that's certainly what I was taught. It mm-hmm. usually presents, or at least when it's picked up, mm-hmm. is later. Yeah, and for the most part, celiac disease is is found in the in the adult period, yeah. uh, and it could be because it was not picked up uh, earlier that it was very vague symptoms. Uh, but but and and the 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 truth is that uh, we don't see the classic presentation uh, much anymore. So you do see it some. 
We sure do. Yeah, I mean, I yeah. don't. You see more, obviously, this yeah. than I do. Yeah, yeah we definitely see it. Uh, we know that more than 50% of people with celiac disease have no symptoms. So mm-hmm. so unfortunately, we're, we're tr- somewhat fishing in the dark when we're trying to find this condition. Um, so what to do with the the person who has no symptoms, is, does that mean that you would put them on a gluten-free diet regardless? No, we, we do not want you to put on a gluten-free diet unless you've done the testing for celiac disease, which includes uh, blood work to look for the antibodies yep. uh, that the body forms against gluten, and, um, and ideally a, an endoscopic biopsy. And that's kind of the gold standard, that actually is. looking for that inflammation and that atrophy of the Absolutely. gut. Yeah, that's the way you really see it. So someone has a positive test but isn't having symptoms? Yes, definitely. We want to see them in our gastroenterology uh-huh. clinic and uh, and still proceed with the endoscopy because that would, you know, confirm the diagnosis. Mm-hmm. It's it's a lot harder to, to treat if you have no symptoms. Sure. And I've had over the years more than a few patients of mine right. that are like either tweeners or teenagers who ha- are a little spectrum have some developmental stuff mm-hmm. that at the parent's request they wanted me to do the celiac blood tests. And I begrudgingly did and found them to be positive and scratch my head and go, okay, (laughs) and sent them off and get put on gluten-free diets. And then they they seemed to be, I'm not sure whether they were experiencing abdominal pain, but didn't know it. They didn't (laughs) know what, how they should be feeling. So you take them off the gluten and all of a sudden they realize that daily stomach aches aren't normal. Right. Or whether they just became more sensitive since you've pulled that out of their diet. But I've definitely seen kids who didn't seem to have symptoms, but you pulled them off of it because their test was positive and it was confirmed. And then now they really are gluten sensitive. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's an important test to do, uh, especially in in kids where you can't communicate well uh, to rule out that condition. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so back to the kind of masses of whether it's (laughs) the fad, because it's certainly, I know many people who, are gluten free? Oh, I'm gluten free now, and you know that maybe that lasts long term. Maybe that lasts a few months. Mm-hmm. Um, one is there really any harm short term of being off gluten? It sounds like if you're if you're taking vitamins or getting other sources of foods that are natural foods, right. not really. You don't need gluten. No, I think uh, gluten free is is very healthy if you're doing it naturally. And I think a lot of people, if they're kind of going toward a low carb diet mm-hmm. to lose weight, right. the natural thing you're cutting out are, are all the breads and the pastas. Right. And so you're kind of making you, whether it's exclusively gluten-free or kind of gluten-free, <laughs> yeah. um, they're kind of achieving that. Um, yeah, definitely. I think, I think uh, our diets today are pretty heavy in, in, uh, all of these kinds of carbs. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, what little we can take out would be great uh, in the overall scheme of things. And eating more fruits and vegetables tends to be the biggest challenge for all of us. And that's so. always good for you. Yes, so absolutely. unless you're on that, um, uh, where you're supposed <laughs> to minimize fruit, but that's a separate right. topic. <laughs> so one of the things I asked you before we kind of started recording today was about whether or not you thought that with the changes in the American diet, more processed foods, um, more GMOs, whether you think that's impacted uh, the level of gluten sensitivity or celiac disease in the American population. Is, are there any, is there any research behind that? Is it more just sort of a, a feeling or is there any actual data to support or disprove well, we, that? 
Yeah, we do know that wheat is bred to have more gluten in it. Uh, gluten is the elastic protein that makes wheat softer. So the new the new versions of wheat that have been produced yeah. are higher in gluten. Higher okay. in these uh, elastic proteins yeah. because, you know, the Wonder Bread effect. We want to have that the softest bread. Right. Yes. No one wants dry and grainy <laughs> bread now. Right. And so uh, we do know that's true. Um but they've not been able to say that because of that, it increases your risk of um, celiac disease or other immune. But maybe the the amount of gluten that's being consumed it's possible. is higher. So you're seeing if people are, again, sensitive to right. an excessive amount, just like some people might be sensitive to an excessive amount of lactose. So if you increase the amount of gluten in someone's diet, you might see more. It suggests it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we're, we're all eating more gluten than our ancestors did. Mm -hmm. So, you know, is, is that how to control for that particular question is difficult, but sure. I think that it makes sense. Yeah. Um, and studies can't really, uh, evaluate that. Unfortunately, I think, uh, with all the, you know, evidence pointing this way, it seems reasonable to kind of reduce our intake overall. And then just one, one more topic just kind of for people who might be wanting to either try a reduced gluten or a gluten-free lifestyle at home. Mm -hmm. um, Cross-contamination is obviously an issue for people who truly have celiac disease. And if they are eating something that has been on a cooking surface or using a utensil that has been in contact with gluten-containing stuff, they can truly have a flair. Some kids are Absolutely. people are that sensitive. Yeah. But for people who are just kind of like more trying it out, right? is it as important to kind of be as pure about it? Or? No, I don't, I don't think that that's necessary to be that strict. Yeah. Uh, we do know with celiac disease, they have an immune inflammatory reaction. And um, with celiac disease, this is a significant problem, cross-contamination. Because your immune system is reacting to microscopic amounts of that absolutely. protein. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and that inflammation is, uh, you know, over, over their lifetime is going to increase their risks of long-term issues. So we, uh, we emphasize the need to be as clean as possible mm -hmm. with cross-contamination in celiac disease, for sure. Uh, and that's not the, that's not what's happening with the uh, gluten sensitivity or yeah. the wheat sensitivity uh, conditions. Probably more of a, they're going to experience more symptoms with a higher amount in their diet and less right. symptoms with less, but microscopic amounts aren't going to affect sure. them. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, any uh, kind of closing comments about gluten and the world? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I think, you know, I think wheat is an important part of our diet. Mm -hmm. uh, it it does have a lot of good nutrition yep. in it. Uh, I think everything in moderation is sure. important. And more fruits and vegetables and for more everybody. more fruits and vegetables. For everybody. <laughs> Great. Well, so for the people who are listening who might want to either hear more from you or come see you or get their kid tested if they were worried, um, how can people get a hold of you and or contact you? Sure. Uh, I work at the University of California uh, San Francisco Gastroenterology uh, in Oakland. And uh, you can reach us through our, our office, 510-428-3058. Uh, the GI uh, hotline. The GI yeah. hotline. Yeah. Yes. Great. And um, you're, you're in Walnut Creek, which is where I'm interviewing right now. Yes. And you're also in Oakland both. I see patients in Walnut Creek, San Ramon, 
and Oakland. Getting all around. Yes. Today. Great. Yeah. Well, thanks for taking the time to talk to us about gluten and uh, sure. look forward to talking to you soon about another topic <laughs> of GI importance. Thank you for having me. And now let's take a brief break. When we return, we'll hear this week's parenting horror story and also answer a question from a listener. And we're back. Before we proceed with the next segments, I want to remind all the listeners about our phone-in line, which has been set up for people to call in and leave voicemail questions to be answered on the show. In addition, if you'd like to contribute to our segment, Parenting Horror Stories, you can also use the same number. The call-in number is 925-732-6274. Call in with your question or horror story for the show. If you'd prefer, you can also contact us on Facebook at the Owner's Manual Podcast, where you can leave comments or post questions and stories or idea topics for the show. Whichever way you prefer, we can't wait to hear from you. I really need more questions and horror stories for the show, so don't be bashful. Pick up your phone and call or post your question or story today. In honor of Halloween, we're continuing our segment parenting horror stories i'm calling on parents to call in with funny stories or anecdotes about funny or outrageous things that happened when trying to parent it might be a story that describes your less than greatest moment as a parent or possibly just something funny or endearing that your child did you don't have to identify yourself if you're embarrassed or you can make up a funny pseudonym so once again here it is Parenting Horror Stories. Hi, Dr. Drew. Um, this is Laurie from Chestnut Hill. Since um, Halloween is about to happen, I wanted to just tell everybody my scariest story. I have loved being a mom, but every so often scary things happen. Like the time one of my sons fell down the stairs on top of his guitar, or the other time, another son came down with the chicken pox when he was on a school trip to France. But of the many years I've been a mom, the scariest event happened the time my oldest son, who was just two years old at the time, told me he had a dime stuck in his throat. He had found some coins and was playing with them, and now one was stuck in his throat. I didn't know what to do. He was holding his mouth in such a strange way that it really believed him. And even though he was just just two, he spoke so beautifully that I really thought there was something in his throat. I called our pediatrician who told me that it was impossible. The child is just two years old, put him back to bed, and he's, he's just making it up. I did put him back to bed, but he continued to call me that the dime was still in his throat. I called the doctor back and told him I was going to take him to the hospital. My doctor suggested that everyone would laugh at me. I said that was okay, and his dad and I took Michael to Berkshire Medical Center. We were living in the Berkshires at the time. There was there, no one laughed. 
Instead, X-rays looked like a quarter was stuck in my little guy's throat. Shortly after, little Mike sat on the gurney and went into the operating room where they removed not a dime, not a quarter, but a nickel that was stuck in his throat. Speak about scary. That was very scary. Thanks, Ma. I mean, Lori. <clears throat> Thanks for calling in with your horror story. Your voice sounds strangely familiar to me. I just can't place it. Anyways, it sounds like it was a good thing that you went with your parental instincts and brought Mike, I mean, your son, to the hospital. And that's the parenting horror story for the week. Happy Halloween, everybody. And now for this week's phone-in question. Hi, Dr. Nash. My name is Lori from Danville, and I have a question in regards to my teenagers. They have a tendency to gravitate towards those energy drinks that you see at a lot of the um, fast food stores and um, the quick stops on the way to high school. And I'm really concerned. How can how does this affect them? I'm trying to encourage them not to drink them, but wanted your feedback on how um, does that affect a teenager's body and their metabolism, etc., and sleep habits actually. Um, if you could let me know, I'd greatly appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for calling, Lori. Another Lori. Excellent question, though. Over the past 15 years or so, the sales of energy drinks has soared in the U.S. The main demographic of individuals who buy these products are teenagers and young adults. One-third of teens ages 12 to 17 years of age drink them regularly. There are two kinds of energy drink products. One is sold in containers similar in size to those of ordinary soft drinks, such as a 16-ounce bottle. The other kind, called energy shots, are sold in small containers holding two to two and a half ounces of concentrated liquid. Caffeine is a major ingredient in both products at levels of 70 to 240 milligrams in a 16-ounce drink and 113 to 200 milligrams in an energy shot. For comparison, a 12-ounce can of cola contains about 35 milligrams of caffeine, and an 8-ounce cup of coffee contains about 100 milligrams. Energy drinks may also contain other ingredients such as guarana, another source of caffeine, sometimes called Brazilian cocoa, sugars, taurine, ginseng, B vitamins, yohimbe, carnitine, and bitter orange. The amounts of caffeine in energy drinks vary widely, and the actual caffeine content may not be identified easily. Guarana, commonly included in energy drinks, contains caffeine. Therefore, the addition of guarana increases the drink's total caffeine content. Side effects of caffeine use may be associated with anxiety, sleep problems, digestive problems, and dehydration. Large amounts of caffeine may cause serious heart and blood vessel problems such as heart rhythm disturbances and increases in heart rate and blood pressure. Caffeine may also harm children's still developing cardiovascular and nervous system. Then there's the increasing issue of mixing alcohol with energy drinks. In fact, this has become such an issue that beverages that combined energy drinks and alcohol were banned by the FDA in November 2010. However, mixing the two remains a popular practice. Here are some concerning statistics on the topic. Between 2007 and 2011, the number of energy drink-related visits to the emergency department doubled. 
In 2011, one in 10 of these visits resulted in hospitalization. About 25% of college students consume alcohol with energy drinks, and they binge drink significantly more than students who don't mix them. The CDC reports that drinkers aged 15 to 23 who mix alcohol with energy drinks are four times more likely to binge drink at high intensity, meaning they consume six or more drinks per episode, than drinkers who do not mix alcohol with energy drinks. Drinkers who mix alcohol with energy drinks are more likely than drinkers who do not mix alcohol with energy drinks to report unwanted or unprotected sex, driving drunk, or riding with a driver who is intoxicated or sustaining alcohol-related injuries. In 2011, 42% of all energy drink-related emergency department visits involved combining these beverages with alcohol or drugs such as marijuana. So here's the bottom line. A growing body of scientific evidence shows that energy drinks can have serious health effects, particularly in children, teenagers, and young adults. The amounts of caffeine in energy drinks vary widely, and the actual caffeine content may not be identified easily. Some energy drinks are marketed as beverages and others as dietary supplements. There are no requirements to declare the amount of caffeine on the label of either type of product. Excessive energy drink consumption may disrupt teens' sleep patterns and may be associated with increased risk-taking behavior. In addition, caffeine and the other stimulants commonly found in energy drinks can be associated with more serious health issues such as cardiac arrhythmias, high blood pressure, or when combined with other stimulants, even neurologic problems such as seizures. There's really nothing that I can say that is good about energy drinks or their ingredients. I would work on educating your teen about these issues and concerns so that they can hopefully make better decisions for themselves. I hope that answers your question. And that's our show for the day. I hope you liked it. I would really like to thank Dr. Malasetti for taking the time to talk to me about celiac disease, gluten intolerance, and all that is related I think that the information in the discussion will give parents a sense about how celiac disease can present and what symptoms to look for and what a trial off gluten might be helpful for your child. Also, hopefully listeners got an idea of when a referral to a pediatric GI specialist might be needed to help work through these issues. So until next time, this is your host, Drew Nash, wishing you and your child good health and happy parenting. And happy Halloween, everybody. The opinions and beliefs expressed on the owner's manual are that of myself, Dr. Nash, and my guests, and do not necessarily represent those of sponsors or other governing boards. The owner's manual is recorded and produced Neutron Sound, Danville, California. The content of the owner's manual is the intellectual property of Andrew L. Nash, MD, and One to One Pediatrics Incorporated. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved.